Hello everyone, how are you doing today? Welcome to the first edition of Starscream's Ghost, a Transformers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Graves. Thank you very much for checking out this video today. And before we go any further, I want to introduce my cohort in crime. If you've seen previous ventures of ours together, you'll know that we've done podcasts for a very long time, and it's great to be doing another one with him once again. It is the one and only Mr. Andy Hanley. Andy, how are you doing today? Hello, everybody. Yes, I'm I'm doing very well. Excited to have an excuse to talk about Transformers, because I don't really get many excuses to talk about Transformers, as it turns out. I know, right? It's because we've done loads of podcasts before, be it professionally or just for fun, quite frankly, in all sorts of circles. But when we were trying to think of something that we could do together again, and we just stumbled upon the idea of, let's talk about Transformers. And then to just to, to say it from the outset, everybody, the whole idea of this podcast is we are going to go through, I say all of Transformers, at least G1. That's the current pitch. <laughs> and we'll go from there. And we're just going to go through the episodes and just sort of do some recaps, have some fun discussions, see what else comes up in uh, along the way. It's pretty one way to put it. But but yeah, it's it's been really fun sort of delving back into Transformers because... This is actually probably the perfect place to start, because we've both been Transformers fans for a very long time, to say the least. But I'll, I'll hand the reins to you, so I don't keep rambling. So, so Andy, to give people an introduction to both of our, our fandoms of Transformers, what's your history with Transformers? Yeah, so I, I because I knew this question would come up, I sort of like spent some time like trying to, to think about it and figure it out because you know I was like five years old at the time, so it was like what 15 <laughs> years ago, something like that. Um, <laughs> a little bit longer, maybe. Um, but yeah, because I, I mean, I think my actual starting point for Transformers was actually like the Marvel UK comics, uh, because like. Basically, when, when I was a kid, like, my mum worked night shifts at the weekends, and so, like, on the Sunday morning, after her night shift, she would stop uh, at the local newsagent, buy a paper for, like, her and my dad, and then would usually just buy some something for me, like, maybe it'd be a book, maybe it'd be a comic, maybe it'd be a little toy or something, just a kind of little trinket to kind of keep me occupied of, of a Sunday, um, or kind of Sunday roast were being cooked or whatever, um, and most of those things were just kind of like ephemeral throwaway things that I'd, you know, I'd read, I'd like enjoy for maybe an hour or so, and then I'd be done with it. Uh, but one week she came back uh, from from work and from the newsagent with that issue 30 of the Transformers UK comic, Decepticon Dambusters, which actually ties into some of the stuff that happens in, in these episodes that we're talking about, funnily enough. And I still don't really know exactly what it was, but... I was just like gripped by this. Like I read it and then I read it again and then I read it again. And I kind of kept going back and looking at the pictures and kind of, you know, just, just rereading it, looking through the whole thing. And like, it was pretty clear from the outset to my parents were like, oh, like something is like caught here. Um, and so of course, like the next week, you know, she bought the next issue rather than getting me something else. And then like, I think it was issue 32 where the cover was just, Grimlock in his dinosaur mode with a bunch of flames and like five-year-old me was like oh my god this is amazing like it's a dinosaur that's also a robot and there's fire like what more could a five-year-old ask um and so that was kind of my starting point of you know I ended up just getting like a subscription with your local news agent for the comics so I got that every week and like you know carried on with that for for years like I, I've got a good 200 plus issues of that kicking around in my house somewhere um, and so the other stuff kind of came sort of secondary to that. Like I, 
I don't recall. I'll probably remember when we get to those episodes on this podcast, but like I just randomly caught like one of the season one episodes on, on Timmy Mallet's Wackaday. Um, if you if you are a UK listener of a certain age, you will know immediately who Timmy Mallet is and be like, oh, yeah, sure. If you're not, you'll be like, what did that guy just say? Of um, all the callbacks I was not expecting today, yeah, that was cause one. Because that, that was, yeah, like, that was where the Transformers cartoon lived. Like, you know, it was kind of spliced into, you know, Mallet's Mallet and all of that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, like, I, I recall, I don't know how many episodes I actually ended up watching, and I suspect it was that typical kind of cartoon thing of the time where, you know, they just sort of kept rerunning episodes. Because I feel like I never really got to see that many episodes, certainly beyond, like, season one. I think everything that I watched like subsequent to that was just like random VHS tapes in your local video rental store and that kind of thing. Cause there was never really a regular kind of slot that I remember of just like, Oh, you know, this is where I go to watch the Transformers cartoon. Um, so yeah, that was kind of how I got into watching the actual cartoon. Um, and then obviously like the toys were an, an inevitable follow on like Thundercracker was the first transformer that I ever owned. Um, and I still think he's pretty cool. Um, so he, he gets quite a lot of play in these episodes as well. So it's 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 all good. Um, and so, yeah, like I just kind of ended up Transformers was my thing. And like, you know, for at that time, like it was the big thing as well. Like, you know, all of my friends were into it to varying degrees. Um, and so it was that constant sort of like, you know, you, you'd go around your friend's house and be like, oh, my God, how did you manage to get this Transformer? Because I've never seen it on sale anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, there was, a, there was a whole lot of that. But, yeah, comics were the starting point, And then it was kind of the, the toys and the cartoon from, from then on. And I still, to this day, like, I still think the Transformers comics are some really fantastic kind of pieces of fiction, especially as it got kind of deeper into its run. It started doing some really smart stuff with time travel, especially once it kind of added in the movie characters and, you know, actually had some really pretty deep storylines that I suspect some of which flew over like five, six-year-old me's head. It is very interesting in a way how our our path to becoming Transformers fans is similar but different because my earliest memory is the cartoon. That, that's what I saw first. And I don't recall exactly which episode it may have been, but I just recall loving the fact there was, like you said, a dinosaur robot. Anything that has dinosaurs when you're a kid is basically gold. It, it, it just is, quite frankly. So I was really attached to seeing the Dinobots and whatnot. That's really what drew me in. I want to say it may have even not been until season two that I really like discovered and followed in inverted commas, the Transformers, because when you're a kid, you just, when you see it on TV, you just start watching it. And then when it came to the toys, I I don't remember what my first one may have been, but I'm leaning towards it either being Jazz or Starscream, which might play into, into why this podcast is called Starscream's Ghost. But quite frankly, as we're going to talk about in a few moments when we get to these initial episodes, Starscream, it turns out, is a lot of reason for why this this story even happened, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd forgotten just how much of an idiot Starscream is from literally, like, <laughs> minute one of episode one. It's, like, just just right out there from the front. It's like, oh, yeah, you're kind of a moron. Mm, but when it comes to the comics, because I... 
when I was younger, I was, for a better way of putting it, I had some learning difficulties when I was younger. That's just the easy way to sum it up. So I didn't necessarily read a heck of a lot, if much at all. So I took things very much in the form of like a visual medium like television or games. That's really how I process things like that. So I really didn't start reading comics until much later in my childhood. So I was completely unaware of Transformers comics. And then over the years, we've had many conversations about just how deep the Transformers comics got and whatnot. And I think even at one point you mentioned that there were effectively two different runs of Transformers comics happening at the same time, right? Yeah, well, it was always the weird thing because like the Marvel comics had the US run and the UK run. And so the US comics ran fortnightly i think but like the transformers uk was weekly and so like once they burned through the initial sort of the initial issues which was basically like the whole origin story that is kind of on the episodes we're talking about obviously they just had big gaps to fill um and so you know they hired uk artists and writers to fill those gaps um and it it turned out that the uk was kind of getting the, the quality content really because the the us comics were very much just kind of toy of the week you know who who do we need to sell this week and write the storyline around and it was all kind of relatively basic whereas the uk guys just had a bit of a free reign to be like hey look here are these characters here's this whole cast you can do whatever the heck you like there wasn't a whole lot of like oversight on it as i understand it from hasbro so they got to play with sort of the lesser characters that you know maybe the the comics otherwise wouldn't care about and they just got to basically do what they like they just had the whole toy box to to mess with um and so i think it always ended up being kind of story driven first rather than we need to sell more Dinobots this week, so please put, you know, more Grimlock in your story kind of thing. So so I guess some of the immortal questions that people always ask when you're like a proper old school Transformers fan is, did you have an Optimus Prime? Oh, yes, yeah. That was one of the first Transformers that I got. I think I, that was... Really? Like, wow! That, that <laughs> was like a birthday or Christmas present, I think. So I, I think that might have been like my big Christmas present, the first Christmas I was a Transformers fan. So I think I think Thundercracker might have been a birthday thing or something. Um, and yeah, like I think that was probably the year where like, you know, it was kind of the, the Buzz Lightyear or whatever of, of its time where it's just like, that was the must have toy of like, you've got to have an Optimus Prime. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 got, so I got that pretty early on. I also got like the, um, later on the sort of the, 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 the reborn Optimus Prime, which, you know, completely fell for the marketing strategy of killing, like, your most famous character in a film, <laughs> and then just, oh, now he's back, but he's got a slightly different design, so guess you've got to buy a new toy, and, uh, yeah, like, fell, fell for that one, hook, line, and sinker, so I, I also have, uh, I can't remember whether it's, like, the Power Master Optimus Prime I have, but it's definitely, like, the, the, the new design, the new look Optimus Prime as well. Hmm. I honestly don't think I've ever had an Optimus Prime toy. And that's not for not wanting one, because, you know, especially just quite like this, when you're really young, Optimus Prime was the one. If you could somehow get hold of that, you were basically treated like a god in a school playground, quite frankly. That's just the way it was. But I don't recall ever having an Optimus Prime. And just for whatever reason, I've never actually acquired one. I, 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 I don't know why. Frankly, yeah, but well, I'm, I mean that that was the weird thing back in the day as well. And it's kind of hard to remember in, in this sort of era of like internet online shopping, where you can buy something from anywhere in the world. And you've got Amazon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like as a five-year-old, like pre-internet kid, you know the Transformers you could buy were completely limited to whatever your local toy stores bought in. 
And it was always like, I mean, I remember everywhere that I ever went on holiday as a kid, like my my poor parents got dragged around all the toy shops just to see what Transformers they had. And if they had any that weren't available in kind of, you know, my neck of the woods. Um, and then, you know, likewise, again, you'd visit friends and you'd be like, how did you get a shockwave? Like, I've never been able to find a shockwave anywhere. Like, I'm so salty that I don't have a shockwave Transformers toy. Um, and, and it's just like, I never saw them anywhere in any of the shops. And, you know, it was very much... And there were some Transformers that I don't think actually ever came to the UK. Like, it was just not worth the transportation costs and whatever other things they had to factor in to sell them. So there were some that just never made it over here. And so, you know, you were just kind of straight out of luck if you were a UK fan. And of course, you didn't know any of that at the time. It was just this weird gold dust thing of just like nobody can can get hold of them. And you, you didn't know why. So it's kind of weird going back as a grown up and like seeing all the market economics of like, oh, that's why I couldn't buy this toy that I wanted. There is something to be said about the the thrill of the hunt for toys was always r such a good thing. There was always a great thing of just, for example, like my, I remember the toy shops where I grew up in North London, the main ones were Woolworths. There was a big Toys R Us. There was like a big shopping center that may have had like, I'll just say like, a, a you know, not a branded toy store, but a toy shop there kind of thing. Like that's sort of what I had to work with. And maybe like the odd sort of, you know, shop like a forbidden planet, but you know, one that's like, you know, around the corner in a high street type deal, one of those ones. But back then, because you learn eventually, you could just ask someone, do you have any more out back? Might you have one of these in stock? You don't, you just take, you just took what you had for granted, what was on the peg in the shop. You didn't necessarily think there may be more. You just assumed that's all they have. 12 iron hides, I don't know, or something like that. <laughs> Just... Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it was always so exciting that moment when you walked into a, a toy store, like either for the first time in a while, or if it's like the first time you've been somewhere again, if you're like away on holiday or whatever, and just be like, what are they going to have? And more often than not, it would end up a like disappointment of just like, oh, it's the same as like the other stores. But yeah, like occasionally, I, I there were definitely occasions where you know there, there wasn't. I I couldn't afford like I hadn't saved up the pocket money to to buy one, and my parents were like, well, we're not, you know, we're, we're not just buying you Transformers like you know just just like that. There, there were definitely like visits to toy shops that just involved like five minutes of me just just holding a transformer, just looking at the <laughs> box, just peering through like the perspex front, being like, "Oh, that looks really cool." And like maybe one day it'll turn up somewhere else, and then just like saying a, a sad goodbye to it, <laughs> never seeing it again. Yeah, I think the transformer I always wanted an original of, and I'll never get one just because there's so much at this point. But I always wanted a sound wave. That was the one. Like cassette players are my jam in general, but just there was something about the fact it was almost like a, a two-in-one or a three-in-one transformer because you had the tapes as well. It was just such a cool thing, and Soundwave is still to this day one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, I, I had a friend who got a Soundwave, and yeah, like there was a, a very definite like love-hate relationship with them from that point forth. Of just like I can't believe you have this and I don't, but also you have this and I can come around your house and play with it occasionally. So I guess that's okay. Uh, weirdly, the one for me was Wheeljack. I never managed to find a Wheeljack anywhere, and I love mm. Wheeljack's design. Um, and like I love both his robot modes and his car mode, and it's just like ah, I know. I never got a wheel jack, and that's that's my 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 sadness. I think 
so before we we delve back to the first three episodes, which is what we're going to be talking about today, just to sort of set the scene for what we've watched in recent years of Transformers, as it were, what, what have your viewing habits been when it comes to just watching Transformers in general in recent times? Um, so, I mean, I watch Transformers the movie relatively regularly, not least because they just keep re-releasing it, and so I always <laughs> buy it and then watch it again. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like I watch Transformers the movie at least like once a year because I, you know... I, it will doubtless be a future episode of this podcast because it'd be weird if we skipped it. Um, but you know, I love everything about that film, and it's been actually been really kind of edifying to see people kind of coming around on that movie because I remember there being a long time when the received wisdom was like, "Oh, Transformers the movie sucks. It's just a toy commercial. They kill off all the characters. Boo!" Um, and like, I feel like the last few years and the last couple of re-releases, I've seen a lot more writing around it that's been like, "No, actually, this is like a really interesting." film like given its target audience etc etc um so that i watch quite re re quite regularly occasionally i will just like slap on a random episode of the series um the one and again well that was talk about this more uh, in at a future juncture but call of the primitives is like my favorite kind of non-movie episode that i occasionally put on because that has a really good animation like i don't know what happened there um and it, it's it's actually a really kind of interesting story on that one so i, I i'm a big fan of that one um, but that aside, yeah, that, that's kind of it, really. I listen to the soundtracks quite a lot. I've got the uh, the G1. Well, actually, the it's not quite full, but like the, the the vinyl release that they did of the like TV series soundtracks, and I've also got the the movie soundtrack on vinyl. Um, plus, I have like the extended one that they sold at some US convention at some point of the movie soundtrack. <laughs> so, like, musically, I listen to Transformers stuff quite a lot, because I still think the Transformers movie soundtrack is tremendous, and, like, the TV show soundtrack is, is also really good, um, and, uh, like, especially the, the season one soundtrack is kind of really interesting, because you don't see or hear soundtracks like that anymore, because it's a lot of actual live instruments and not just all electronic stuff, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is kind of, you know, it was just on that cusp before everybody just started using synths for everything, so it's kind of, kind of, like, unique in a way. Yeah, when it comes to, to uh, by the way, I would say the Transformers movie soundtrack is flipping phenomenal. That's on regular rotation on my Spotify, mainly to listen to the Stan Bush songs, if I'm being totally honest, but let's be fair, that's not a bad thing by any means. But when it comes to watching Transformers, I this, this will probably set the stage for a lot of my feelings going forward, but I honestly cannot remember the last time I just sat down and watched OG Transformers. I just, I, I can't. It, it felt so new, yet so nostalgic at the same time. Because I remember I've seen them, but... Lots of things that happened, even in these three episodes, I had no recollection of whatsoever. So it's been really fun to watch it from that perspective. And occasionally I might have tried to delve into some of the the more recent series, like, uh, what was it, the Transformers Prime was one. I watched a little bit of Robots in Disguise, just, again, anecdotally. But most recently I watched the War for Cybertron trilogy. In fact, within the last, like, three weeks or so, I just mainlined all of it because I forgot, oh, I've not watched that yet. I fancy watching it. And having actually watched that, that's actually added a lot of other thoughts regarding this original series we're going to be talking about in these three episodes. It's it sort of reminded me of certain things that I never actually thought about, as weird as it sounds. So that's going to be interesting to explore that. But but I, I do, like, the Transformers movie, I, I'm sure I've probably watched that within the last five years, but there's always an element where 
when it comes to me watching things, I sometimes just go, you know what? I really want to watch that. I'll have a good time watching that. And then for whatever reason, I don't, but I feel like I have. (laughs) (laughs) So I always just kind of think, oh, that was good fun watching that, even though I probably haven't. It's just the way my brain is wired, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, that that is. I, I I'd completely forgotten. I've watched like two thirds of the War for Cybertron trilogy on Netflix, and that was that was pretty cool. Like that was nice mm. to see as a kind of actual G one because I am my, my biggest fault is that I am just such a stickler for like everything having to be kind of like proper G one Transformers that I really struggle to get to get into anything that is not and so i've never really tried stuff like prime or robots in disguise because it's always you know like me slamming my fist on the table saying this isn't proper transformers this isn't what i watched <laughs> as a kid um and so war for cybertron was kind of catnip to me because it's like oh you know this is actually those characters and you know they they, they they delve deep into that side of things um and yeah and then obviously you know there's the the, the, the live action films i mean the, the bumblebee movie was pretty decent like i kind of enjoyed that and again that felt like it was taking far more of its cues from g1 transformers uh, but all of the michael bay films i mean i think i only watched like the first two of those films and they were kind of like it was kind of like well it's cool that transformers are back but this is not really my jam um and then i didn't bother watching the rest i'm trying to remember, i think i've only seen the first two live action ones i haven't even seen bumblebee for some reason again not through any like malice just i haven't seen it <laughs> But because uh, what's what was second was Revenge of the Fallen was that the second live action one? Possibly, yeah. I kind of forget what the the timeline of of those is as well. Now it's I, I could just Google it and fairness, but I didn't. So there you go. We could, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, like, they're they're not they're not great films. Um, like e- even taking the Transformers ness away from them, they're not great films. So. Quick note, everybody, you can watch all of the episodes of the Transformers for free on YouTube legally. If you go to the Hasbro Pulse YouTube channel, that is where we have been watching the episodes. So you can watch all the episodes of seasons one, two, three, and even the the, the very brief season four. But if you want to watch the episodes along with us, you can do so for free by heading to the Hasbro Pulse YouTube channel. Now back to the show. So that leads us on to what we are talking about today and how this podcast going forward is going to is going to roll no pun intended that um we're just going to be talking through episodes of the original G1 series the, the current plan as it stands because you know t- time is a thing we'll see how we do we're going to obviously do the first season and we're probably going to split that over i think we decided five-ish episodes andy did we yeah, it was That's either four or for. five, I forget. Yeah, over four or five episodes. Then, you know, we'll see how things go. We'll get on to season two, inevitably the movie. We'll probably do season three. I assume we'll do Headmasters, be it the American one, or we'll probably venture into the Japanese versions. Because honestly, I'm interested in doing that at some point. Just delving full force into those Japanese series, because they will be a trip. Especially with the English dub, quite frankly. That is an experience unto itself. But we begin with episode one, More Than Meets the Eye. Now, the way we're going to do this is we're going to get a tad granular and just sort of recapping things that occur during the episode. Differing amounts of detail may happen. Just, again, roll with us. Again, no pun intended, on how this goes, because this is our pilot episode, everybody. So we begin with uh, what I described, Andy, as a deep-voiced narrator saying the following... Many millions of years ago on planet Cybertron, life existed, but not life as we know it today. Intelligent robots that could think and feel inhabited the cities. They were called Autobots and Decepticons. 
But the brutal Decepticons were driven by a single goal. Total domination. They set out to destroy the peace-loving Autobots, and a war between the forces of good and evil ravaged across Cybertron, devastating all in its path, draining the planet's once rich sources of energy. The Autobots on the verge of extinction battle valiantly to survive. I love that as an opening sequence to the show. The first thing you get is this wonderful backstory. You see Cybertron. You just see this... I'll see just like a, a glimpse of this metallic planet. So that's very much what it is. And it really just sets the scene perfectly. And I loved that. Yeah. I mean, for, for, for starters, like whatever they paid the narrator of Transformers, and I, I always forget the, the name of who they are. They didn't pay them enough because like the, the narration for all of the Transformers stuff is such a good voice. And it's just like, it's perfect. But yeah, like the design of Cybertron is just incredibly cool and striking. Um, like it's probably one of the best bits of like design work in the entire series because it's a it's just a cool metal planet, but also like it's just so like ravaged and such a mess. And it's kind of like it, it really puts across that idea of like, oh, here's the midst of this war that has been going on for a long time, and what was kind of this shiny, beautiful planet is now just kind of like you know falling to bits because it's basically been kind of torn asunder. Um, and it kind of, you know, does all of that without ever really sort of delving into that too much. It's just, you can just tell from looking at it. And uh, yeah, like it's a, it's a really cool kind of establishing shot of like where we are with this whole thing. Another thing which, and this is a point I wanted to get to a little bit later, but I think it, it definitely serves credence now. There was a real knack for for older cartoons. Like, I mean, G.I. Joe, just to sort of backtrack a little bit, was another or action force as we knew it over here for a great period of time was another cartoon I was massively into when I was younger. And you get other cartoons from like the late 80s, early 90s, where within like the intro sequence to the show, the title sequence, you would have the entire basic plot explained. And they do that in the Transformers theme song, which we haven't talked about that quite frankly, still great to this day. But it's just how much it establishes in the space of about a minute. And you know exactly where you stand. And even as a kid, I don't. I probably didn't fully grasp what the heck was going on, quite frankly. But just looking at it now, they cover a lot of ground in that opening minute of the show. There. Yeah, yeah, and I mean this this entire kind of like th these entire three episodes cram. I'd forgotten how much they cram into these three episodes to so the point where it, it kind of feels like it could have done with a bit more time and breathing space in, in mm. the numerous places. But yeah, it, it does. It does a heck of a lot, and it kind of you know it's. It's crazy looking at it now, kind of as an adult who sort of knows the origin story of how the whole Transformers story came about. Of you know, it's like basically Bob Budiansky being given on Thanksgiving weekend. It's like, hey, we've got this kind of we've bought this line of Japanese toys. They need names. They need characters. They need a story so that we can like sell this to kids. And like the fact that he came up with all these like iconic names and characters. And the whole Transformers premise in basically like a Thanksgiving weekend is kind of nuts because, you know, it feels like something that is very thought out, very considered and is kind of like, you know, smartly done from from kind of, you know, pillar to post. Yeah, and you were mentioning how much they cram in, and not to talk about everything as a whole, but one of the main notes I have got for watching these three episodes is, man, this is fast-paced. I get, like, attention spans can sometimes be, you know, an important thing to consider when writing any story, but, man, did they cram so much, like you said, into these three episodes, let alone one. 
Yeah, and it doesn't. The, the frustrating thing, kind of, you know, and I guess as a kid, it maybe doesn't like impact the same way. But like as a grown up, like there, there are good kind of like dramatic points that it doesn't give any time to sink in because it just automatically like fast cuts to the next thing. Like, okay, well, here's what's happening now, and it feels like there there are numerous moments in these episodes where it felt it almost felt like they were designed to have like you know. A, a long sort of pan out on a character or something, or just to give you a few seconds to let a line of dialogue sink in, but it's like, no, it just snaps right onto the next thing. Um, so it's, I, I, I would love to like be able to like sit down with like the, the editors and the producers or whatever, or whatever on this and like hear the story because it feels like they either just you know because of budget constraints they just didn't like have time to like well we can't edit a few extra seconds of animation or whatever or they just they had too much footage and had to cut it down to work within the time frame of like three tv size episodes it does make me wonder and admittedly i probably could have looked this up before we actually came on today but it, these three episodes feel very self-contained yet ultimately open-ended to allow for more because this is effectively a three-episode pilot hmm yeah, yeah. Which I mean, is this why is... it has to cram so much in. Yeah, yeah, and this is exactly yeah. Like this is the the pilot episode, and yeah, it has it has that weird typical pilot episode feel of like this is the end of the story, or is it? And it's, it's that <laughs> desperate hope that they're going to get commissioned for more episodes. Um, and, and it's also created in such a way that you suspect if they already knew that there wouldn't be any more of it, you could just lop the very ending off of episode three and just leave it as like, no, like, you know, everything's great. The, you know, the, the day has been won. Um, and they could have just lopped off the kind of the, the big sort of tease slash reveal that, no, there's still, you know, Megatron's still around, by the way. Um, and, and, you know, you could have made it completely self-contained and just sold it like that. So after that uh, dramatic narration that we were talking about, we cut to a particular building along the landscape of Cybertron where Wheeljack and Bumblebee appear from under the floor carrying energy conductors, or as I originally wrote it down, fluorescent light tubes. <laughs> uh, now on the road back to Iacon around, quote, one mega mile away, which I loved as a as a distance measurement, uh, they are attacked or ambushed rather by some of the some of the Decepticons, leading to Bumblebee getting hit by one of the, the Seekers, like Thundercracker, Starscream. I didn't note down which one it was specifically. Uh, while being chased, the chase ends when they are able to go underground and the Seekers are unable to follow. We then cut back to Iacon, where Wheeljack and Bumblebee head inside, but it turns out they are being closely watched by a hidden Transformer, who suddenly turns into his, what I will call, regular robot form, who we come to know as Soundwave. He sends out Laserbeak to spy on the conversations being had inside. Inside the Iacon, with Laserbeak watching on from the outside, we are introduced to Optimus Prime, Jazz, Ratchet, and Trailbreaker, though not necessarily all of them by name at that point. And they are alluding to the fact that they have got, they have potentially discovered a new source of energy. Soundwave, with Laserbeak returning to its cassette form, heads back to Decepticon HQ as we are introduced to Megatron, Shockwave, and Starscream for the first time. Megatron intends to follow the Autobots to this new source of energy, leaving Shockwave in charge of operations while he and his party are away. This is the first time that we come to see Starscream making his feelings known, which will be a long-running theme in the show, I am quite sure, <laughs> and as we all know, where he claims that the war should have already been over, with Megatron vowing that Starscream will never become Decepticon leader. 
And at that point, Andy, we have now hit the six-minute mark of episode one. <laughs> and that's a heck of a lot they packed in there. Yeah, yeah, plenty plenty has, has happened. I mean, the, the, the big question that I have in my mind is, like, who, when they were designing, like, the the, ex- the external kind of lighting, etc., of Iacon said, I know we should make these lights look like Sandwave. Because, I mean, you know, <laughs> the fact that they yeah. just happen to have this kind of, like, street-side furniture that just so happens to look like, you know, one of your enemy's, like, commanders is probably a bad move. <laughs> it did make me wonder if maybe, like, I don't know, the Decepticons had built, like, another thing I was going to say another transformer, but in a weird way, that's the wrong word to use. But like another dummy, if you will, to put on the other side of the road, so that yeah. it would look like it's part of the structure rather than actually it being that. But I, I do agree that that seemed very convenient. Yeah, it seemed like there were a few of them around. So like, I'm just, I just feel like it was, it was some bad, bad thinking on, on their part. But I, I, the, the thing that I do really like about this is that, I mean, I guess by necessity, like they had to create kind of. Cybertron like vehicle modes for all of these characters and even if they don't quite kind of match up to their robot modes it's like well that's not quite right they kind of get close enough that it's you can believe that it's like okay yeah sure that's what they transformed into before um and Bumblebee's kind of like weird sort of UFO mode is kind of cool like Wheeljack looks pretty cool and like yeah all of the jets have have pretty decent kind of uh alternate modes like I'm not really sure whether Sandwave's original transforming mode was just a street light on Cybertron and he kind of got an, he kind of got an upgrade when he ended up on Earth. Like, oh cool, I'm a cassette tape now. Um because it's like, you know, I don't I don't quite know what his sort of like analog would be. Um and yeah, and I, I'm also just all a, a, a sucker for Shockwave in, 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 in everything he does. Like his voice is is really cool. Like his kind of character is 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 pretty pretty good, and like both his robot and like just ridiculous space cannon modes are, are pretty pretty <laughs> awesome as well. It's funny because this is and again this is like talking about the fact I've not watched OG Transformers in so long, but having watched War for Cybertron, this and this is gonna be a weird observation, but just bear with me on this while I say this, but. War for Cybertron, obviously, a lot of the, the focus of the of the first chapter, if you will, is the fact it's everything is on Cybertron and the Transformers are transforming. And I'd kind of forgotten that the Seekers had almost this weird triangular design to them rather than being a plane when they get to Earth. I just sort of... It sounds weird. I just forgot that they actually already could transform and it wasn't the fact that they got to Earth and then could transform, which for some reason is how I wrote it in my brain. So seeing their Cybertronian forms, I know it's dumb, right? This is just how my child brain worked, apparently. But there's a part of me where seeing them in their Cybertronian original form, it felt so refreshing and almost actually then added credence later to the story when they actually get to Earth, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes. But for me, it was actually quite a weird juxtaposition, a way of remembering oh yeah, like they, they actually had their own OG forms. They weren't just called Transformers for the sake of it or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was always a thing. And yeah, it's, it's sort of, you you almost, it, it, you, you start to go down that rabbit hole of just like wanting to know what all of their like original forms looked like, which would have been a nightmare for like the, the character designers. I bet they were glad <laughs> that they didn't have everyone transform um, in, in those sort of early minutes. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. I, I will also note, Starscream seemed to have completely the wrong voice for his first line in this episode. Right? I've got that noted as well. <laughs> like, I, I, I would love to know whether that was 
whether that was just like a production error or whether like they actually decided to change who did that voice at that point in time or like what the deal was with that because it's not even a slightly like oh not quite got it like i'm not even sure whether it's just like the same voice actor who like was just trying out different voices for that character and, and that did he have a cold that day or something yeah <laughs> and that's just how it wound up but it was just like such a weird i mean there, there are a few weird kind of like production errors you can see like i think later in that scene like one of the jets is completely the wrong color scheme and there's you know th there, there are plenty of like, kind of weird moments like that throughout all of the transformers cartoon but so uh, yeah starscream's voice was just like wait a second what What's, what's going on here? And another thing to add to my thoughts about like the Cybertronian forms, if you will, or transformations, is because I mentioned when we were talking about our respective Transformers histories that I joined in probably around season two. So there was an element where because I hadn't seen how the story had begun, I didn't know that there were original Cybertronian versions of their transformations. Because I, no, one, I'm, this is jumping forward quite a bit, but I vividly remember one of the the episodes that stood out to me the most involved some of the human characters. I think it might have been Spike and Carly going to Cybertron on the space bridge. Mm, yeah, and that's like vividly what, one or two of the episodes I remember the most from my childhood. So I think that's probably the time when I was really into it around season two. So in hindsight, it's totally understandable I didn't know there were Cybertronian forms, but that's also why it kind of shocked me a little bit. When yeah. watching these episodes, yeah, for sure. I, I think those space bridge episodes are like late in season one as well. I guess we'll we'll, we'll get there when we when we get there. But I think those mm. are like late season one episodes. That yeah, it's the, the the whole space bridge thing is is always really cool. Mm. But back at Iacon, the Autobots launch their ship into space, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, is called the Ark. Mm -hmm. It is indeed. I can't remember if they actually name checked that, but I think that is what it's known as. Uh, but the, the Decepticons are in hot pursuit in a ship of their own. They have to go through a bumpy ride, to say the least, in an asteroid field after two asteroids collide. But the Decepticons' cover is blown because they have to follow the Autobots after they have conveniently created a path using a big-ass laser, as I've described it in my notes. But the Decepticons decide they're going to use a tractor beam and board the Autobot ship. This leads to a full-scale fight inside the ship, which swiftly ends when the G-force of a nearby planet results in them crashing down all inside the Autobot ship, specifically into a huge volcano. Cute ad break. <laughs> we then come to find out that four million years have passed since the crash. The volcano erupts, prompting Teletran 1, not name-checked at this point, uh, to activate and sends a drone to explore the planet to, to scan nearby objects, if you will, or as it comes to be, machines, to repair... The, the Cybertronians on the ship. The first one they repair is a Decepticon we know as one of the Seekers and repairs them in the form of a jet. This jet then promptly helps out Megatron, who then gets reconverted. So, Andy, first of all, correction, correct me if I'm wrong, was Megatron always a gun on Cybertron? Or was he was he made into a gun at this point? I don't think you ever get to see. I mean, it's uh, it, it's one of the weird bits of Transformers where you know you've got like G two where he's a tank, and I'm not sure whether that was. I, I assume he was always a gun and just like probably mm. just not an, an Earth gun before, but mm. I don't think you ever know for sure. Mm. But either way, though, Megatron is revived, who then promptly says, "Let's get the other Decepticons revived," leaving just the Autobots there. We assume dead, but it's never explicitly said. So the Decepticons go on top of the volcano to explore their new surroundings, have come to terms with the fact that, as Megatron was putting it, a lot of time has gone by. 
<laughs> as it were. But this leads Starscream wanting to finish off the Autobots once and for all. Because Andy, Starscream being the cunning person that he is, he wants to basically just crush them, even though they're already dead. And this is what I was alluding to at the start of the episode. Because he set off effectively like a, a bit of a of an avalanche, a mudslide, if you will, whatever the correct term is, an earthquake, uh, that meant that, that Optimus Prime's body fell into the path of Teletram 1's re like repair kit, if you will, repair beam, and that's how Optimus Prime gets revived. So it is literally Starscream's fault that the war between the Autobots and Decepticons continued on Earth. Yeah, and I, I particularly love that whole scene because, like, Starscream starts, like, firing onto the, like, volcano slash ship. Megatron basically tells him to knock that off, and he's like, oh, okay, and then he just carries on anyway. <laughs> and that is the point. Like, it's not even just that, like, he does it, and Megatron says, like, don't do that, and that's the end of it. He then just carries on, and that is the point. The fact that he's just, like, has to have one last little go that actually kind of, you know, just <laughs> brings... <laughs> brings um optimus prime back to life so uh yeah like some some poor poor thinking on starscream's part and not not for the first time in this series i did like the line as well i think optimus prime's line of dialogue was just thanks <laughs> yeah, yeah. Effect, which is, yeah, which is one, of, one of the points where like the really quick cut away that doesn't give you any time to breathe actually really it basically feels like it's just like a, a, a gag reel it's almost like a meme at that point where he's just like thanks and they just cut straight away from somebody <laughs> else but the, the other thing that i kind of realized like especially with the sort of the, the attack on the arc and what have you is there's there's a real mirror between this first episode and like the start of transformers the movie um, and I didn't, I'd never really thought about like how the two kind of mirror each other because, you know, you have Soundwave using Laserbeak to, you know, spy on them. Then you have the attack on the shuttle that kind of, you know, causes all sorts of chaos, like far, far fewer fatalities um, than, than in the movie. Um, but like all of that stuff, it almost follows, you know, almost exactly kind of the, the path that the, the film treads, which is kind of like a, it's sort of weird to see it parallels quite that closely. So, back on Earth, the Decepticons are now looking to build a new base and ship to return to Cybertron. Starscream, Soundwave, and Rumble head off to a nearby city to get materials, as I wrote it down. But back on the Autobot ship, all the Autobots are now revived, and Prime tasks Hound and Cliffjumper with finding the whereabouts of the Decepticons. Back with Starscream, Rumble, and Soundwave, Starscream is flapping his gums... I guess. He hasn't really got gums, but we'll just roll with that. Uh, flapping his gums about one day being the leader, but Rumble makes it clear that he won't be able to because Megatron is too strong before getting back to work. Hound and, Cl Hound and Cliff Jumper, excuse me, uh, find the new Decepticon base, which I will note, Andy, have you noticed how quick they've built a lot of that at this point? <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I mean, how futuristic it, it looks as well. It's like, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how they got planning permission that quickly, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like the whole thing is like that. That's probably the the biggest like suspension of disbelief requiring moment of these entire episodes of just like you built a base and like basically you know four hours or something. It feels like I'm not quite sure how that works, even if you're robots. Using uh, Hound using his ability to focus in on sound from far away, they hear Soundwave discussing with Megatron how they can harness the Earth's resources by converting said energy into Energon cubes. And despite only meant to be, sorry, despite only meaning to be on a recon mission, 
Cliff Jumper can't take any more, out of nowhere, produces a massive bazooka and proceeds to attack Megatron with it. This leads to a chase involving Laserbeak chasing down Hound and Cliff Jumper. Ultimately, Cliff Jumper comes off okay, but Hound takes a tumble off a large cliff face. We then cut to the end of another ad break with Ratchet, Cliff Jumper, and Hauler, I think I wrote down, but correct me if I got that name wrong, uh, retrieving Hound, and on their journey back, Reflector, which I totally forgot was three separate Transformers that make a camera now, but that was a thing, apparently. <laughs> uh, and also, the fact he has an ability to make a Polaroid photo, Andy. I got a kick out of that. <laughs> yeah, I did I, I did enjoy like the, the, the Polaroid side of, of that, because it's like... I mean, it is sort of it makes sense narratively because obviously this was a time before digital cameras, and they were clearly like, well, how do we how do we make this work like for this narratively? Like, what if he's a Polaroid? And it's like, yeah, okay, that that makes sense. Um, <laughs> it is it is hoist, not hauler, by the way. Hoist, yeah. thank you. Yeah, definitely. And I only remember that because I, I have I had a hoist toy as as a kid. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I'm a big fan of Cliff Jumpers, like massive. I think it's a glass gun he has. I forget. I don't even know how that works, but I guess it turns things to glass, which I guess is cool. Um, like it, it's always the, the fun thing on the toys of like reading the tech specs of what the exact weapons or the Transformers had and what they did, which the the cartoon sort of used when it suited it. Like you know, when there was a need for a character's weapon to have a very specific, like you know, a very specific outcome, then they'd use it. Otherwise, it was just like a pew-pew laser. Um, and they were always very interchangeable with that. Um, but uh, yeah, Cliff Jumper has, has a cool gun. Cooler than his temperament, as it turns out. <laughs> so as mentioned, Reflector and his Polaroid ability and Thundercracker have spotted them. This prompts Megatron to send Ravage into action, who we now see for the first time. His first appearance, attacking humans really establishing the fact that, that the Decepticons are bad guys. Because the power station that was destroyed a few scenes earlier by Starscream and Soundwave, a couple of humans have come to check on it, but ultimately they are succumbed to the, to the scary and quite physical nature of Ravage. Laserbeak returns... Uh, sorry, off to another scene now. Laserbeak returns having found a new source of energy, an oil rig. The Decepticons are now en route to said oil rig, with the humans on board completely unaware of their seemingly impending doom. The humans try to fight back in what I described as hurling tools at them, but Megatron promptly just throws them all into the sea, which I did laugh at quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, the, the note I made at that point was just literally like, Megatron is brutal. Like, just no <laughs> messing around. And Which, again, it kind of feels a little bit sort of, like, different from a lot of other sort of cartoons of, of that era, because I, I don't recall sort of, like, other baddies... In, in cartoons of that era being quite that just out there and just like, nah, I'm just, I'm just throwing you all in the sea. Like uh, there is no, no kind of, you know, quarter being given here. Like I, I want this oil and you, you know, you can, you, you can just get off this platform. And by the way, I'm going to set it all on fire. <laughs> uh, Rumble has a tangle with a human who we later come to know as spark plug, but not before his son spike is hurled into the sea by trying to help his dad. Uh, when Sparkplug gets free, he dives in after Spike. We now see, a, a few moments later, we now see the Decepticons creating Energon cubes by converting the oil on board. Starscream is overjoyed that they can now go back to Cybertron, but Megatron reminds him that it's only a small fraction of what they need to be able to do that. 
The Autobots arrive by air, I've noted, because that also threw me for a loop. I forgot Autobots could fly. Uh, and a battle ensues on the oil rig. In the process, of, in, in the process, excuse me, some Energon cubes are destroyed, but Megatron has the laugh laugh by wreaking havoc all over the oil rig, pretty much destroying it and starting a fire. The two humans that I mentioned are trapped underneath some stanchions. Prime goes to help them, but it's having difficulty with the weight of them in the water. And the Decepticons leave, having the last laugh seemingly, as episode one draws to a close. Yeah, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty good cliffhanger as they go, you know, just like fire everywhere, peril, wondering whether Sparkplug is actually Sparkplug's real name because that's just like <laughs> a weird name for a person. Um, it's like you know when when, when like you know his his mum gave birth to him, it's like nah, he's definitely going to be some kind of like mechanic, so we're going to call you Sparkplug. Um, Would that mean then that Spike's surname is Plug? So Spike Plug. Well, I mean, I'm assuming Spark Plug is just like his entire first name. Yeah, because it's Spark Plug Witwicky is like his full is his full I name. I forgot there. that. Oh my so, god. So yeah, so so yeah, and it's Spike Spike Witwicky. But yeah, like I don't know, that's that's a that's a weird name to, to be. But uh, hey, I mean, we, we also have Chip later, so I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I as a whole, I really enjoyed this first episode. Again, the breakneck pace aside i think it established so much had a great amount of action showed a lot of drama and it just it covered so much ground in this first episode it actually does leave you clamoring for more yeah it, it's actually pretty smart in terms of of kind of its use of characters as well like it, it doesn't straight away become like the optimus prime and megatron show and everyone else is just kind of you know it, it's just sort of background setting um which is sort of a lot of cartoons i feel like tend to do you know you've got your your hero you like you know you've got your sort of your he-man and your skeletor or whatever and everyone else maybe they'll get an, a special episode somewhere but otherwise they're kind of you know they're, they're not really that involved but like you spend a lot of time with like hound and cliff jumper who are sort of not really a tier kind of characters in a lot of ways in transformers and then you get to see a bunch of kind of rumble you know in in this episode and it's kind of you know it, it's kind of cool that it, it gets to it gets to do that and it plays with its full cast uh, a little bit more. Um, but yeah, like it, it does, it does good stuff and it, it gets, it gets straight down to business. There, there's no messing around here. So it's uh, yeah, pl plenty to, to dig into. I will say, and I forgot to mention it a few minutes ago, but I did love the introduction of Ravage. It was just so eye catching. And also the fact that it also demonstrated so early on, Aside from laser beak being in sort of the shape of a bird, but you can actually get proper animals being transformers as well. It was just such a cool, uh, such a cool dichotomy from what we had already seen from all the transformers designs. It was just a really fun moment to see that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ravage and kind of laser beak are both like really good sort of like top tier designs of, of transformers. It's kind of weird because yeah, you just have like Rumble and Frenzy that they just turn into blokes basically and then yeah you've got like ravage and laser beak that are like oh they're like really cool kind of animal characters um i, I was always kind of a bit disappointed with the, the cassette toys because obviously they had to be very flat and they were all kind of a little bit yeah compared to like the, the cartoon designs which yeah in ravage's case in particular is like really really pretty cool mm. so i mentioned about the autobots flying and i did want to just bring this as a moment of discussion as it were because can the Autobots actually fly? Because for so long, and just so many years, I've always just assumed they can't. 
Yeah, I, I think it's the weird thing. I mean, it's very much kind of... Or is this one of those pilot episode tropes, potentially? No, no, they, they, they always do it because, I mean, it's, you know, it, given that the, the series takes place right around the world, even in these pilots, like, you know, you don't want to have a, like, several days later when all the cast took the ferry to, you know, Burma. You know, it was it was a very clear shortcut of just like, well, we've got to get into places really quickly, otherwise the whole story falls apart. So it's like, well, I guess we'll just make them fly. Um, and obviously later in this, it... It tries to differentiate a little bit because it the obvious question you ask at that point is like, well, what's the point of having the jet transformers? Because they can fly or they can fly. Um, and they do try to kind of make a bit of a differentiation there in terms of like speed, because they sort of make it clear that like, well, you know, like the the Autobots can't fly as fast as a shuttle or as the jets maybe, but they can still fly. Um, and yeah, like it's it's always a bit of a bit of a, a weird thing. I, I'm trying to remember whether they they also fly in the comics. I think I think they do for the same reasons of it. Just like it's just a convenient shortcut to get them where they need to be, so that they don't have to like drive cross country for twelve hours or whatever. Mm. Yeah, I think this may just be again like Jeremy's kid brain. Uh, so I talk about me in the third person. I don't know why, but my kid brain just having certain memories. But then also I mentioned that from the perspective of watching War for Cybertron, and the Autobots really couldn't fly in that, sans one particular character, which I won't say in case anyone's not seen it. But, but yeah, that's why I mentioned that in passing. So as we go to episode two, the Autobots help the humans on the oil rig and establish, an, and now this establishes an introduction to Spark, Plug, and Spike, who we have mentioned, who offer to help the Autobots, seeing as they know more about the Earth than they do, which I thought was a very valid point. Yeah, again, an, an era before Wikipedia, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's like they couldn't just look it up on the internet and be like, what's, what's the deal with Earth? Um, it's, I mean, it's prob <laughs> probably, a good, probably a good job social media wasn't around at that time. Otherwise, they might have looked at it and be like, no, nah, actually, the Decepticons maybe have a point. Let's just, you know, let's just wreck the place and go home. Um, but uh, but yeah, like it's kind of, it, it, it's, it makes perfect sense of just uh, the kind of like mutual relationship there, which is 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 cool. It's, it's, it's way simpler than the comics, which are kind of a lot more... Man, the, the comics get complicated really quickly. Like, you know, spoilers if you've never read any of the comics, but like Optimus Prime basically uploads his brain into Spike's head because he's about <laughs> to get killed for one of like umpteen times. And so, you know, the, the whole the whole way that like Spike and Spark Plug get drawn into the Transformers world in the comics is super interesting, but also kind of super complicated compared to this. I genuinely never knew that was a thing that happened. I'm, I'm quite intrigued now, but we'll come back to that another time. Outside Autobot HQ, Spike is writing in his journal, which I totally forgot was a thing, <laughs> uh, about the Autobots with Soundwave in close proximity. Having concealed his appearance by transforming into a cassette player, Spike unknowingly takes the spy inside, thinking someone simply had left it there giving Soundwave and Ravage the opportunity to steal information about Earth from Teletram 1. We get the first full glimpse at Spike interacting with Hound, Mirage, and I want to say it's Trailbreaker, because I've not written that down in my notes so, for some yeah. reason. Uh, we see that, that Hound can generate a hologram of a human in the car seat of his Jeep, and Mirage can, can initiate optic camouflage, effectively. Spike then discovers Soundwave and Ravage, leading to the Autobots trying to capture them both. Soundwave gets away, but after some fruitful tactics of simply hiding in the shadows in the rocks, 
Good job, Ravage. Uh, the Autobots capture Ravage with the help of what I've simply described, Andy, because I'm pretty sure they might be illegal, as infrared headlights, as well as a net. <laughs> yes, they, they, they do in, indeed. I, I, I felt really stupid watching these episodes because I always forget that Mirage's like, trick is being able to create mirages. And it's like, right. It's, right, it's right there in his name, but I always somehow <laughs> forget, like, oh yeah, that's, that's what you can do. And, and very, very important foreshadowing there, it should be said. Hmm. And again, I'm going to keep saying it about Ravage, but I just love the way how... What's the way to phrase this? We, of all the Decepticons we have seen so far, just in this initial episode and a half, it's been established that Megatron is a real threat, Starscream is a klutz, and you know, Soundwave is a really key figure, but they've established certain roles. But Ravage, to me, comes across as one of the most important Decepticons, especially because Megatron is the one that says, send Ravage. There's just an element to where the actual stature and importance of Ravage is really exemplified in this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, kind of as your like sneaky spy cat, like you know, he's he is really very handy. It, it also like it, Ravage is a really good example of like how good all of the voice work is in this series because even Ravage, who doesn't speak, just kind of growls a bit, but has this really cool kind of like robotic, like electronic kind of growl. And it's just like, it's really subtle. It's like, you know, they, they don't give him some weird kind of like roar or something, but it's just this really good kind of like menacing, but kind of like just perfectly pitched for that kind of character. And I, and I, I really kind of appreciate that. Rewatching these episodes, that was one of the things that I came down on is just like how good all of the voice work is and all of the kind of like use of sort of synthesizers to give them the kind of robot sounding voices. And they, they all sound really good right across the, the bar. Uh, but but Ravage is kind of a particularly interesting one in that regard. I will say that every time Soundwave talks, I do have a smile on my face. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of the things that kind of ruins me on like any other like version of Transformers, like including War for Cybertron. One of the hardest things I found is that like Soundwave doesn't talk like that because if you're trying to have something that's a bit more narratively deep, you can't really have like sound waves like curt sentence sentence structure because like he can't really say anything much. But for this like cartoon, it works perfectly and it's just really good as just like, you know, two two he just like slaps two big words together and everyone's like, Oh yeah, okay, thanks, Soundwave. <laughs> Back at Decepticon HQ, Soundwave shares some of the information that he discovered, including places on Earth where energy or materials could be transformed and harnessed into Energon cubes. Now at the Sherman Dam, because that's where we head to next, Rumble is tasked with creating what I've described, Andy, as a tidal wave, but correct me if you think I'm wrong on that, <laughs> to overflow the dam so that hydropower, I assume, never explicitly explained, can be converted into Energon cubes. The Autobots arrive, leading to a battle between them all in our first Earth-based one-on-one battle with Prime and Megatron. I appreciate they had a little bit of a scuffle on the oil rig, but it wasn't much of one. To me, this was a full-blown battle between the two of them. Yeah, yeah, it's a really cool. And again, I mean, this ties back to what I was saying about my my origin of like the first Transformers comic that I had was basically kind of one of the few points where sort of, you know, the the comic and the cartoon sort of intertwine because they have this exact all of these kind of this whole setup happens in that particular comic where you have that big Megatron and, and that was kind of like the cover image as well was like Megatron and Optimus Prime with their cool kind of like axe and ball and chain attachments that they really should, should use more often because they look 
badass. Um, and you know that whole thing on on the top of the dam is is really good. Alongside the rest of it, like I, the the threat of kind of you know this tidal wave flooding. I think actually the comic does it better because it probably, you know, it's easier to draw kind of like a busy town that's about to get flooded. Whereas here it's just like, hey, you saved a couple of houses. Great. Um, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't have quite the same impact, but it's kind of it's a really cool. I just always really appreciated the idea of just the whole like, you know, this attack on the dam, what they're trying to do, the fallout of it, which kind of, you know, again, gives you a good clue in of like, well, you know, the Decepticons don't really care about any collateral damage. They just want the power. Um, but yeah, and then you get to that that battle on the top of the, the dam where you get a really good like sassy line from Optimus Prime where he's just like, "You're junk to Megatron." And it's like because it's usually the Decepticons get all the good kind of lines and all the good put downs, but Optimus Prime just having none of it. Just like, "No, you're you're junk, you're junk." <laughs> and uh, also, again, talking about voice work, Megatron's laugh is amazing in this across all of like this these episodes like his maniacal laugh is just absolutely fantastic and like you can tell um like frank welker really enjoying like hamming it up and doing the full kind of villain laugh like plus like the electronic like modulation of it just sounds so good uh, during this battle, I should mention, Hound is fighting with Rumble underwater, and as you alluded to, Ironhide and Bumblebee create a new river to capture the water that has now been... Uh, just capture the water from the destroyed dam, quite frankly. Ultimately, the Decepticons are able to leave with a large amount of Energon cubes. The Elsewhere, the Decepticons continue to gather Energon from around the globe, I assume, uh, leading to them heading to a mine to convert the Ruby Crystals of Burma. The richest source of energy on Earth, don't you know, Andy? <laughs> but not before Starscream needs to test the Energon actually works by firing a laser into a mountain. <laughs> While Starscream's antics have set the Decepticons' plans back, Sparkplug, Spike, and Trailbreaker are listening in on them to get intel from the Autobots on their next move. They are attacked by two of the, of the Jet Seekers. Uh, that So Sunstreaker and Sideswipe are called in to assist with them on that. Again, another little discrepancy here between whether Decepticons and Autobots can fly, but we'll let it go. I do want to make mention of something here, which I meant to mention during um, sort of the battle part with like Trailbreaker and uh, Rumble Underwater. Sorry, Hound and uh, Rumble Underwater. Spike, Spike goes in into the water to, to, to help uh, free Hound from being trapped by rocks underwater. How the hell is he strong enough to to unearth Hound from boulders underwater? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, you it's, this? yeah, I mean, it is it's, it's definitely another suspension of disbelief moment because yeah, like if 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 the boulders are sufficiently heavy to like keep this like massively powerful robot trapped, and then yeah, Spike just swims down there and just like, yep, yeah, there you go, problem solved. It's there, there, there are questions to, to be asked, um, and I. I <laughs> I do. I do also enjoy the 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 um the the, the subsequent part of that because obviously Hound ends up having to kind of rescue Spike, who's basically drowning at that point, and the the subsequent shot of him kind of like basically helping get the the water out of Spike's lungs has been used and abused by people on social media for for many Aww. a year because you know it, there, there there are there there are fun illusions that you can make with that imagery and of course people <laughs> never fail to do so oh thanks internet <laughs> at the burma crystal mine soundwave has determined that the crystals will be enough to power all of cybertron it, 
Uh, in a bid to bury them within the mines, Sparkplug and Bumblebee sneak into spe speak in. Try that again. They sneak inside, got there in the end, to try and set a bomb. They set it successfully, but are discovered by Skywarp and Thundercracker as they are attempting to leave, leading to Spike, as I've written down here, literally getting punched by a Decepticon into a wall. <laughs> and somehow is not dead, but we'll let that slide. Uh, and Bumblebee just getting knocked out. Prime then goes to head into the mine, but sends in uh, Roller, which I totally forgot was a thing, to investigate. But the bomb goes off, and the episode's end. Uh, the episode, singular, pardon me, ends with Prime being flung from the cliff edge while in his transformed state, and the mine now seemingly gone. Yeah, I, I'm. I don't think Roller turns up in the cartoon again. Like I may be wrong, and maybe he does show up at some point. But like this. And and again, it's it's very similar in the comics where Roller just kind of gets forgotten about because, like you know, he's just a little car that sits inside you know Optimus Prime's trailer, and and very much a case of like this was just a thing that was with the original Diaclone toy before it was even a Transformer, and I guess we'll just keep it in, because um, the the original like toy version of Optimus Prime actually had little people that could sit in the cab or could sit in roller um that, that you don't get with the the actual transformers version of the toy but yeah i don't think roller ever gets any play again which is kind of a shame because he's sort of an interesting like little like remote control sort of addition and, and i think canonically like any pain or damage that roller takes like optimus prime can feel which it does some interesting oh wow it's one of those is it <laughs> yeah yeah because it's definitely like in some of the comics where you know they send roller in and he gets blown up and you know it's it's it's, it's a world of world of her um but yeah it's like, like twins in, it's like uh what is it the the twins in gi joe Mot and tomax i think it is yeah, that might, that might be a reference lost on some people, but they can literally just feel each other's pain. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's that whole thing going on. But yeah, again, like really good episode cliffhanger of just like Optimus Prime rolling seemingly endlessly down this this cliff face, uh, which is is kind of a good a good moment to to end that on as a little bit a little bit of peril. Like has, has Optimus Prime died already? <laughs> <laughs> and now we come to more than meets the eye part. Three. The episode begins with the Autobots tending to Prime. Turns out Roller is absolutely fine, and Prime is able to transform, but with great difficulty. Jazz is able to find Sparkplug, who's totally fine, having been punched by a Decepticon, but we'll come back to that another day, most likely. Uh, and also finds Bumblebee while they're digging as well. Megatron was able to blow a hole in the top of the mountain, meaning the Decepticons were able to escape with their Energon. Ironhide has, a, has had enough of all of this, and uh, quote-unquote, He's had enough of sucking their vapor trails, Andy. I wanted to make sure I wrote that down. And takes to the air to follow them. Uh, but um, I want to say it's... I've written down Blue goes to get him, but that's really not right. I've clearly made a typo there because it's not Blur because Blur doesn't exist yet. So another Autobot follows him. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's Blue Streak, I think. Thank I you. There you go. That was clearly just autocorrect doing its thing. But yes, Blue Streak goes to follow him. Uh, but they both end up engaging with the Decepticons in midair. We now get to see Skywarp use a teleport ability, again, forgot that was that was a thing completely, and appear behind them, and then tries to shoot them down, getting Ironhide in the process. Back at Autobot HQ, Hound and Mirage are taunting Ravage, who at this point is locked in a cage, and they're taunting him with the key and a hologram of Megatron. While I appreciate they're having fun, Andy... This is cruelty to animals. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's uh, yeah. It is. 
I mean, one thing I will say in advance, I, I really love a lot of the kind of plot twists and ideas in this final episode. Um, and, and I do kind of like the way they kind of stumble upon a master plan just by, by basically taking the, the Mickey out of Ravage by like showing him pictures of, of Megatron. <laughs> it's just, uh, but yeah, there's some, some, some good, good stuff there. Well, the idea you mentioned was basically from creating a hologram, they thought, what if we create a big hologram? to try and lure the Decepticons to them. Seems like a logical plan. After the plan is agreed, with Prime alluding to having the perfect idea, Hound lets slip that not only the f Hound lets slip that not only is there enough rocket fuel to do four trips for Cybertron and back, but he drops the key to the cage and Ravage, clearly winning like the best animal award here, uh, escapes the cage and the Autobots, seemingly fitting it all into Prime's plan. Back at Decepticon HQ, Ravage relays the information of the rocket fuel to Megatron via Soundwave's cassette tape deck, leading to Starscream and Megatron having yet another argument about Starscream's capability to do any about his capability to do anything, let alone try and overthrow Megatron. <laughs> yeah, so the line I wrote down here from Megatron, I was wondering what how I wrote my notes here, but the line Megatron said was something to the effect of you couldn't lead androids to a picnic. <laughs> I laughed so hard at that. Yeah, it's 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 a good line, also kind of like confusing, but uh, good to know they have picnics on Cybertron too, I guess. <laughs> what do you reckon <laughs> this is a dumb tangent? What would they have at a picnic on Cybertron? I mean, well, see, this, this is actually kind of like a weird revelation rewatching these episodes that like energon cubes weren't a thing until they came to Earth and figured out here's a good way to store energy because you'd kind of assume because that sort of becomes like the the kind of overarching thing of like all energy when it comes to Transformers is oh it's energon whatever. Uh, but like this, these episodes suggest that like energon is a new thing that they've basically invented as a way to store energy. Because otherwise, you'd be like, well, you'd have some kind of like energon-based sandwiches or something. I don't know, or, or an ice cream cone, or yeah. yeah, or sausage rolls. But it's energon, not sausage, <laughs> energon or whatever. Burger. Yeah, exactly. So you'd kind of assume that would be your your androids picnic. But uh, sadly, I'm 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 always surprised that there is not a season two episode about androids having a picnic, but. I, I don't think there is, sadly. I, I will add that uh, after that wonderful line from Megatron, this leads Starscream messing up trying to hit Megatron and ultimately fails. Uh, we should we should have really kept a tally as to how many times Starscream tries to overthrow Megatron for this podcast. Just yeah, yeah, chart. yeah. That's that's it's going to be a very big number. It's. <laughs> And the first part of the episode concludes with Hound setting up what I have described, Andy, as a big-ass hologram of a base. <laughs> with the Decepticons unaware of the deception they face arriving at the location. The second part of the episode begins with the Autobots wearing lab coats for some reason. <laughs> Which this, just made me laugh so much. Yeah, I mean, this is the part where it's like, maybe you didn't think this plan all the way through. Because surely you create <laughs> some, like, hologram technicians or something. Because Hound has already proven that he can make, like, people that look, like, realistic and believable. But instead it's like, no, Bumblebee, get the lab coat on. You're going to have to pretend to be a human, even though you're, like, four times their size. And, like, hey, Windcharger, you're kind of small as well. You're going to have to wear one. It's like, well, where did you get these lab coats? Two, why did you think this would work? Like they don't <laughs> like you know even from like a mile away you'd be like they're just Autobots in lab coats. <laughs> did, did Teletran one just manufacture a bunch of lab coats? Maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, I guess yeah, <laughs> it could probably if it can like 
repair transformers is you know you, you can probably knock out some 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 stitching uh, but but lab coats aside the plan to deceive the Decepticons was fired right back at them because the Decepticons deceived the Autobots, <laughs> showing how good of a plan this was. With Megatron admitting that their plan had failed, that being the Autobots' plan, had failed, as the other Decepticons were already basically pillaging another base for energy. And Megatron making it known that they are at a real rocket base, already getting that energy I mentioned. At the real base, the humans are foolishly engaging in a battle with the, De the Decepticons, I've noted here, uh, and the space cruiser is now fueled and ready to depart. The Autobots now have to go on the offensive. As we start heading towards the climax of the episode, you could say, the Autobots arrive as, as they are planning to board the ship, that being the, the Decepticons, and a final battle ensues. Spike once again proves how incredibly strong he is by throwing what I would best describe as a pebble at Starscream and knocking off one of his arm guns. <laughs> but the attack isn't enough and the cruiser launches, leading to an incredible shout and scream by Optimus Prime, simply just going, Megatron! <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's a good one, and also, I mean, to be fair, having owned like the Starscream toy, like those those arm cannons do fall off pretty easily, so I can <laughs> totally believe. So it's canonical, is what you're saying. Yeah, in real I life. would totally believe that a small a small rock would would from Spike would would knock it off. Like you know, it's a, 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 a breeze of, of some description can knock those things off if you're not careful. <laughs> As we enter the final section of the episode, Prime takes Sideswipe's rocket pack to follow the cruiser into space, seemingly, but is shot out of the sky. Conspicuous by his absence, though, is Mirage. Back on the bridge of the cruiser, Starscream's moment has arrived. He intends to dethrone Megatron, but Mirage decloaks and wreaks some havoc on the controls, leading to the cruiser now plummeting to Earth. Mirage escapes the cruiser, which crashes into the sea. The Autobots, as well as Spark Plug and Spike, are now preparing to head to Cybertron. With the battle now completely done, the Decepticons are rid of. And apparently the governments of all the world, Andy, have donated resources to the Autobots, thanking them for their help. I question how they have many resources left. Another question for another day. But yeah. meanwhile, at the bottom of the ocean, we cut to a shot of the cruiser lying on the seabed. And out from the cruiser's hatch appears a Megatron who swims to the surface as the episode draws to a close. Yeah. As, um, I, I, I feel like this final episode really kind of like brings everything together. Cause I do really like, as I mentioned, like all of the little plot twists in this of just like the Autobots think they fooled Ravage. Who's clearly like onto the fact that they're kind of like fooling him. So they then, you know, turn that back around on them and then the whole thing with Mirage is also kind of like a really nice kind of like ending point, which that, that was the part that I'd really forgotten was that like Mirage is kind of the hero of the day. Because I sort of had a vague recollection that the, the ship had either like crashed or been shot down, but I'd forgotten that like Mirage was sort of the uh, the, the the perpetrator of that by sneaking on. Um, and yeah, again, that foreshadowing from from episode one of uh, his his camouflage kind of coming coming back around. But uh, yeah, like it's it's a good it's a good way of ending that. And as mentioned, very smartly done. So that you know it it could have been the ending if they wanted it to be. But so uh, clearly, there is more Transformers to come. Indeed, I think another thing which you kind of mentioned earlier on in the podcast actually was I like the fact that they really did manage to put a lot of focus on specific Transformers. 
Like, even though he got shot out the sky, Ironhide gets a little bit of focus. You know, you get Mirage having his moment here. Hound gets the moment against Rumble. They, they did a really good job looking at all three episodes as one collective giant episode of actually putting enough focus on a variety of different Autobots and Decepticons just to really establish the characters. And you got to commend them for that as well. Yeah, yeah. And even, you know, some that just get sprinkled in a little bit, you know, you get to see a little bit of Sideswipe, you get to see a bit of Wheeljack, you get to see a bit of Sunstreaker, which is nice, because in the comic continuity, he is basically, like, injured the entire time. Um, he's <laughs> usually, you know, he's usually in some kind of comatose state for basically the entire run of, of the comics, for some reason. I'm not quite sure why, because he was a cool toy but um yeah like it's 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 really nice the the way that it it plays with that and and kind of doesn't just make it and and again you know it would have been the obvious thing to do to make to write this story in such a way that optimus prime is the hero of the day that like downs the decepticon ship because that's how these sort of stories usually end it's like well you know the 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 big brave you know strong leader is the one that, that that makes the difference but no it's just like you know it's one of the other characters who's just got some smarts about him that does it off of his own back so i, I do i do appreciate and respect it for kind of having having that take on things yeah and it's also nice as well that it, they could have very easily within these first three episodes somehow make it feel like a monster of the week type situation but it never does and it keeps escalating all throughout these three episodes and I can't, because it's been so long since I've watched it, I can't remember how Monster of the Week-esque this may end up feeling as a show. But on the surface, based on these three episodes, I can see why every child under the sun got hooked on this. Yeah, including yeah. us. Yeah, and I, I think season one is mostly, like, very similar in tone. Like, you know, you, you have some some kind of focus on particular characters at certain points, like obviously like the Dinobots and Insecticons and kind of Jetfire all get sort of big, big moments, but it is mostly kind of a bit more of an ensemble thing because, you know, it had this whole range of toys to sell. I think season two is where it gets a bit more kind of specific with certain characters at times. Um, but yeah, season one is pretty good at kind of giving everybody their, their due and a bit of time in the sun. Um, and then obviously, you know, you, you have major characters that just keep coming back to, to mess things up in Starscream's case or to, you know, do something vaguely more useful for anyone else. Exactly. And I think that just about brings this inaugural episode of Starscream's Ghost to a close. Uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, everybody, we are watching these via the Hasbro Pulse YouTube channel. All the episodes are on there. Not the movie. You have to buy that. But all the episodes of the series are on there. So you can literally join in the fun and watch these for free as we're doing them along. We will also, if you've not watched them, link each episode below in the description if you are watching on YouTube. Or, of course, it will be in the podcast show notes as well. If you want to give the podcast a follow, you can do so on both Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us simply by looking up the username at StarscreamsPod. That's at StarscreamsPod. And if you want to drop us an email, because we even have an email, it's StarscreamsGhostPod at gmail.com. So Andy, before we wrap up this inaugural episode, any other thoughts you want to convey? Any random other notes you may have had? Anything that suddenly just come to mind having got to the end of the episode? Anything at all? The one thing that I have not mentioned is that the transforming animations in these episodes are really cool. Um, mm. We've not mentioned of, that at all, have we? Yeah, because <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the, the animation in this as a whole is kind of 
workmanlike at best you know it's kind of it's not it's not as good as i remembered it to be honest like you know kid me was was not quite the connoisseur of you know of animation that i guess i am now but like all the transforming scenes are, are really cool like you know one or two of them are, are a little bit weird like i think there's one point when ratchet transforms and it just makes no sense because he's like he's him but he's also like the ambulance is also there and it's kind of like you know it, it, it's sort of alternate mode from the toys but like generally like there's one scene i think is in episode two where they do a bunch of kind of individual transformations and they all look really good and plus mm. like add in the iconic transforming sound that every kid very quickly learned to make with their mouths when uh, once they owned any of the toys um and you know that 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 looks really good and it's a really good if anything was going to sell you on wanting to buy any of those as a kid, it's that of just like seeing that, you know, the transformation from robot to car or whatever in cartoon form is, is just really pretty awesome. Yeah, that scene you mentioned, I think it's when the Autobots were building a strike team, if I remember. And it was Jazz that kind of made everyone yeah. kind of fall in and do like a roll call, if you will. And so you sort of got to see a number of them like transforming next to each other. So yeah, that was a, if there was ever an advert for toys, that scene was it right there. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the only other note that I've got to mention is that um, it was in the climactic final battle that we finally got to see a lot of the ending credit sequence uh, clips. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always that weird thing. Yeah. You get to see where, where they pulled that footage from. And, uh, and we did indeed. So there we go, everybody. Thank you very much for checking out this first episode of Starscream's Ghost. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please let us know what you think. Give us a shout out on Twitter and Instagram. Or if you want to drop us an email, you can do so as well. I've been Jeremy Graves. He's been Andy Hanley. We've been Starscream's Ghost. That sounds really weird saying that out loud, but whatever. I'll roll with it. Thank you very much for watching and or listening. And we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye, everyone.